we listen this afternoon to the confession of Article 12. Those of you who have a long memory may remember that about a year ago we listened to the first part of this article. I'll read the entire article, but actually we're going to pay attention only to one sentence. You can follow the reading on page 503. The creation of all things, especially the angels. We believe that the Father through the word, that is through his Son, has created out of nothing heaven and earth and all creatures when it seemed good to him, and that he has given to every creature its being, shape and form, and to each its specific task and function to serve its creator. We believe that he also continues to sustain and govern them according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power in order to serve man to the end that man may serve his God. He also created the angels good to be his messengers and to serve his elect. Some of these have fallen from the exalted position in which God created them into everlasting perdition. But the others have, by the grace of God, remained steadfast and continued in their first state. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and of all that is good. With all their might, they lie in wait like murderers to ruin the church and all its members, and to destroy everything by their wicked devices. They are therefore, by their own wickedness, sentenced to eternal damnation and daily expect their horrible torments. Therefore we detest and reject the error of the Sadducees, of the Sadducees who deny that there are any spirits and angels, and also the error of the Manichees, who say that the devils were not created, but have their origin of themselves, and that without having become corrupted, they are wicked by their own nature. So far. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of when you hear the word spiritual? Most of us, I'm sure, think then of our life with the Lord as we begin to experience that today and as we look forward to experiencing that life with the Lord forever hereafter. You may have noticed it. When people talk about their natural life, when they talk, why then they talk about such things as food and drink, our clothing and shelter, our work and play. And when they talk about their spiritual life, why then they talk about such things as our scripture reading and prayer and going to church. And all too often, they think that then of two kinds of things that are separate and distinct. And they do the same thing when they think or talk about God's work of creation 
As you know, we confess with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You can't miss it. The Creed speaks of two. It speaks of heaven and of earth. And heaven is mentioned first. But it's also true that in almost all talk about creation, the focus is on the creation of this world, of the universe. Well, now, that makes sense, to be sure. After all, man, the crown of God's creation, man lives on this earth. And it is a fact. You find the same thing in the opening chapter of the Bible. After all, Genesis 1 begins by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. However, verse 2 then proceeds by talking about the earth. The earth, it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The writer, Moses, then tells us that God, what God did in the six days of creation. But there is no further mention or explanation of the heavens. Alders commenting on that says, It is no wonder that the emphasis falls on the earth, because that is where we people have our dwelling, where we live suffer, die. But Genesis 1 verse 1 teaches us that there is more to reality than this world only. And so it is. Remember well, there's also the spiritual world. There's the world of spiritual beings, the world of angels and the world of demons. The fact is, however, that most church members know little or nothing about that spiritual world. As a matter of fact, we know a lot less than the Bible tells us about that spiritual world. And see, that lack of knowledge is coming to haunt us. You see, there's a lot of talk nowadays about the world of spirits. You find that not only in the New Age movement, which is capitalizing on that phenomenon and on our ignorance thereof, but you find that also in the ever-growing interest in such things as witchcraft, white and black magic, seances, poltergeists, horoscopes, channeling, and such, and such like. In his book, Jesus, Lord of Time and Space, Lambert Dolphin points out, correctly I believe, that according to the Bible, there are two levels of creation, one physical and one, the more important, spiritual. He then goes on to say the responsibility for our failure to be fully informed and educated concerning the dual realms of creation should probably be laid at the door of the church for failing in its task 
of instructing us in the areas that are, by nature, out of bounds for science. And see, that too, that too, is no doubt true. I'm sure that there are not many sermons preached on angels or on demons. The fact is, however, that our confession, the Belgian confession, does speak about the creation of the angels. And we do well to pay careful attention. I want to focus in this sermon on that one sentence of the second paragraph. This confession, he also created the angels good to be his messengers and to serve his elect. You hear it? The angels are servants of God who serve us. So that will be the theme. The angels, servants of God, serving us. Well now, as you may recall, that is precisely the point made by the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, which we read. Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? For many years now, as people became victimized by the scientific philosophy of the age, a philosophy which said that only that is real which can be verified scientifically, for many years now, people have said that angels and demons are not real. Oh yes, the experts said, oh yes, the Bible especially the Old Testament, does indeed talk about angels and demons. But, so it was and is explained by those experts, but that was only an attempt to make concrete what otherwise was and is rather abstract. After all, they said, after all, how do you picture such things as good and evil? How can you picture the powers of good and the forces of evil? All of that, however, becomes much easier, they said, if you simply picture a creature, that is an angel, as a power of good. And then picture another creature, a demon, a devil, as a force of evil. That the experts said and say, I guess that is what people did long ago. And that is also what the writers of the Bible did. They say, we, however... We, with our science and technology, we know better. We know that there are no angels, and we surely know that there are no demons. Well, so it was sought, a thought, and so it was taught, 
also by people of the church. And the others, that is, the people who could not quite accept that, after all, the Bible does talk about angels and demons, the others basically kept their mouths shut about their belief in the existence of angels and demons. It was less embarrassing that way. But but the fact is, a faithful reading of Scripture will not allow any such thinking. The question is, what then does the Bible tell us about angels? What do we know about those creatures who are spoken of in the Bible as the messengers of God who are to serve God's elect? Well, let's see what we can learn. First of all, we should note that a careful reading of the Bible will make it very clear that both angels and demons, both are very real creatures. They surely are not the figment of a person's imagination. For example, in the book of Job, in chapter 38, you read that God asks Job, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. And in chapter 1, verse 6, you read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Well now, we should understand that those designations, the morning stars and the sons of God, are references to angels. You read of the angels already in the book of Genesis. Right after the fall, after the Lord had driven Adam and Eve out of paradise, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The book of Genesis, however, does not specifically tell us about the creation of the angels. As a matter of fact, the Bible says very little about their creation at all. The Apostle Paul, however, does refer to it in his letter to the Colossians. And he does it in the context of talking about the person and the work of Christ. If you'd like, you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, the verses 15 to 17. There Paul says, He, Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Well now, for us to understand what the apostle is saying here, it is important that we remember that Paul is responding to, you could even say that he is arguing with people who held to, I guess, who taught erroneous teachings. And they were leading the people, the church at Colossae, astray. You see, the members of the church at Colossae moved in the exact opposite direction from what the church has been doing for the last century or so. As I said earlier, it's because of our emphasis on science and technology that we have ignored, if not lost sight of, the spiritual world, the world of spirits altogether. But in Colossae, there were people who said, the spiritual world of that, that is really where it's at. Well, now, those people failed to understand. As a matter of fact, they undermined the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. They had no eye for, no appreciation of the meaning of Christ's work for their daily life. That is, for their life in this world here and now. So they advocated asceticism. That is, they said, people, we must deny the body. We must deny the things that are purely physical as much as possible. Ah, yes, we must deny this world and its goods, they said. And in their effort to have people focus on the spiritual world, they even advocated the worship of angels. Remember, Paul warned them, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. That's chapter 2, verse 18. Well, now, it is in that context that Paul writes those words of chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. He wants to underscore that Christ's glory is far superior to that of the angels. For Christ is the image of the invisible God, says Paul. Moreover, he is the firstborn of all creation. Oh no, then Paul is not saying that Christ is the first one of all God's creatures, as the Jehovah Witnesses teach. Surely not. Verse 15, uh, 17 said, says it clearly, he is before all things, he is before all creatures, but the fact that Christ is referred to as the firstborn of all creation, see, that means that he is placed above, that he has a position that is superior to that of all creatures. After all, he is the Lord of all. By him, says Paul, and yes, by him all things were created. The apostle then opens that up for us by telling us all things in heaven and on earth. Think for a moment of Genesis 1 verse 1 here. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
all things, says Paul, both the visible and the invisible. You hear it? Paul underscores here the fullness, the completeness of the creative work of God. All things, that is, everything, all things were created by him, that is, by means of him, in him. But, Paul doesn't stop with that. Not only does he say all things visible and invisible, but he also expounds on the invisible part by saying, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Well now, those words, the words thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those words refer to the angels. You see, each one of those words or titles highlights another facet of both, of their position and of their power. You see, the angels have great power. The book of Daniel, chapters 10 through 12, for example, make that very clear, as that the book of Revelation, especially chapter 12. The angels are involved in, that is, they are engaged in the battles against the powers of evil. As a matter of fact, those evil forces are referred to by some of those same titles, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6. There Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The point, however, is that those spiritual beings have awesome powers, and that they are given great authority. And see, the angels use that power in the service of the Lord here on this earth. Frank Peretti's novel, This Present Darkness, you may have read it, fails miserably to come to grips with that reality. In his book, the angels are really unable to withstand the powers of evil unless, unless the saints uphold them with their prayers. The fact is, however, that the angels have great power, as the Apostle Paul says. But, but it is also a fact that the power and the glory of Christ is far greater than that of the angels. The angels, says Paul, were created by him or in him. He then explains what he means by that in verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. You understand? See, the reason for and the purpose of those mighty angels is that they bring glory to God and through him, uh, bring glory to Christ and through him to the triune God. Paul underscores that one more time in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things 
hold together. Literally, all things have their system in him, or all things have their appointed place, and therein there are designated purpose in him. See, Christ who created all things, Christ is also the one who assigns everything its appointed place, so that nothing in all of creation is reduced to chaos. Well, now, that holds for the angels also. They, too, find their unity in Christ, who holds them together and who assigns them their ministry. See, Christ, as their creator, is also their Lord. Bless the Lord, or you as angels, writes David, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Oh yes, they are powerful spirits. Their titles point that out. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. And as I said earlier, Paul mentions that here in his letter to the Colossians, in order to say to the deceivers in that church, it is not the angels you want to worship, but Christ. For it is Christ and not any angel who directs our life and who safeguards us against the powers of all evil. But in making that point, Paul does tell us some important things about the angels. First of all, they are very real. They are part of the totality of God's creation. And secondly, their titles tell us that they are engaged in the same sort of conflict wherein we too are involved. As a matter of fact, they are involved in that conflict in order that they may be of service to us. That is what we confess with our creed. They are God's messengers who serve his elect. Well, now, that also is specifically mentioned in the letter to the Hebrews. It is significant to note that the letter to the Hebrews talks about the same theme Paul speaks of in his letter to the Colossians. You see, the writer of Hebrews also says that both the position and the glory of Christ is far superior to that of angels. Or to be sure, the reason why he talks about that is altogether different from Paul's letter in the Colossians. See, the Hebrew Christians were being severely persecuted, so much so that they began to lose sight of the glory of Christ. You see, they had heard wonderful things about Christ, his glory and his majesty. They were told, yes, his glory and his majesty were immense, utterly overwhelming. Except, where was it? They didn't see it at all. What they saw was the frightening power of Rome, of the Roman Empire. What they experienced was the anguish of persecution. The writer of Hebrews knew that. 
He knew also about the lingering doubts, the debilitating uncertainties of those Christians. You see, that is why he wrote a letter to comfort them and to reassure them. You ask, how did he do that? Well, you see, he appealed to the scriptures, that is, to the writings of the Old Testament scripture. He wanted to show to these Hebrew Christians that Jesus Christ, who had sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, is so much more and so much greater than the angels. Christ, he says, as Christ is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more ex- excellent than theirs. After all, he goes on to say, after all, the name, the title of the angels is servant, minister. That is, they are creatures who are sent out to serve. And it is their assigned duty to offer up worship to God. But about Christ is Lord. Christ is King. He sits on a throne. His enemies are made a footstool for his feet. As a matter of fact, chapter 2 then goes on to say it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. But everything is put in subjection to him, that is, to Jesus. Oh, it's true, he then goes on to say, at present we do not see everything in subjection to him, but... He then goes on to say, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than angels. And seeing Jesus, that is our comfort. You will know that, he says, in effect. Yes, you will know that if you remember why it was Jesus came. Remember, he came in order that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And see, then he adds these words, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So it is clear. The writer of Hebrews wants to comfort the persecuted church, Abraham's offspring, by reminding the Lord's children of the fact that Christ is much superior to the angels. But, but as he makes that point, he also, at the same time, tells us something about the angels about their ministry on our behalf. He does that specifically in verse 14 of chapter 1. In that verse, the writer uses two words to describe the ministry of angels. First of all, the writer of Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering spirits. 
more literally, they are, he says, liturgical spirits. Well now, as you may know, we use the word liturgy when we speak of the official worship service. In other words, that tells us that when the angels are spoken of as liturgical spirits, then what we are what we are to hear is that the angels fulfill an awesome function in the glorious liturgy, in the worship service of the Lord. See, they serve their God by serving us, the church, that is, those who are to inherit salvation. Ah, yes, God uses the angels for the work of diakonia, says the writer of Hebrews. And as you may know, we use that word in the church also. We use it specifically when thinking of the work of deacons. Diakonia, you see, is typically the kind of service that is offered to those who need help. It's the kind of service that is offered with a ready willingness and out of a warm-hearted concern. Well, now, that is precisely what is said about here about the work of angels. You could say God has ordained them to office. And their office is that they provide diaconal care to all God's children. Oh yes, they are God's servants, not ours. They owe obedience to God, not to us. Van Andel is right when he says, when the angels serve us, they are not rendering obedience to us. Rather, in helping us, they fulfill their service to God. The writer of Hebrews gives no specifics. It is clear from what he says, however, that the service provided by the angels is integrally related to us obtaining our salvation. Their assignment has to do with keeping the road open so that nothing will prevent us from entering the joy of our Lord. And then you see how beautifully it all fits together. First, the writer of Hebrews assures his readers, us, that Christ, the ascended Lord, has all authority. He is Lord of all. No matter how much you are persecuted, he says, remember that your Savior is your God. He is enthroned in majesty. Then he goes on to say, your Savior God has an innumerable host of servants. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, said that he could summon 12 legions of angels. Well, now, all of those angels are servants who, who serve for us. He assigns them the task of ministering to us, to guard us and to keep us, in order that we may inherit, in order that we may obtain salvation, which he wrought for us. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. 
Think of it. No matter how great and awesome the power is of those who oppose us, the Lord our God will surely uphold us in the strife as we engage in the battle of the kingdom. To that end, you see, he uses all that host of angels who are ministering spirits who are sent out to serve for our, for your salvation. When you think of that, then you see again, I ask, then you see anew how very rich we are in Christ. And then you know it for sure, nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Praise the Lord. Amen. We will now join and sing together from Psalm 103. From Psalm 103. Oh, bless the Lord, my soul, bless your preserver. My inmost being, praise his name with fervor. The stanzas 1, 2, 8, and 9 of Psalm 103. Thank you. 